Good evening, and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. We're online at independent.org. That's I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. Our February print edition hit the streets last week and can be found across the city in our red and white news boxes in more than 60 public libraries, as well as independent bookstores, cafes, social movement centers, and other venues. My co-host, Amber Gagarian, is out this week, but we'll be back next week. Today, we have a Valentine's Day special edition that will focus on the cover story in the Indies February print edition. The, uh, the cover story is by Nicholas Powers, and it's titled Black Love as a Historical Force. From Frederick Douglass's earliest memories to Tyree Nichols' final words, Black Love has transformed American history. Uh, Nick will be joining us shortly, and he will be with us for the full hour. For me, Nick's essay is an eloquent reminder of the revolutionary power of love and that black Americans have been protagonists from the beginning in their own liberation struggles. Here is a passage uh, from early in Nick's article. Black love is everywhere. Tupac praised it as, quote, the rose that grew from concrete. Black love does more than survive. It defined our world as much as the Enlightenment or democracy or Jesus. It is an unstoppable force that broke Western slavery, smashed segregation and apartheid, rewrote Islam and Christianity, rewrote the U.S. Constitution, and now challenges the prison industrial complex. Who knew that a kiss was stronger than a gun? If you look at history or art or just look at life, you'll see that love, the most natural instinct, becomes political when trapped by a system that chokes it off for profit. Then love becomes dangerous. It saves us by destroying the world we believed could never change. On that note, I want to welcome Nicholas Powers back to the Independent News Hour. And Nick is a longtime contributing editor at the Independent. He's also a professor of African-American literature at the State University of New York and author of three books including a novel that came out last year called Thirst and a memoir about many of his uh, travels and adventures called The Ground Beneath Zero. Nick, it's great to have you with us here on WBAI Radio. Oh, it's good to hear you and see you, John. Thank you so much. Sure. Uh, 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 so uh, we're going to be letting our listeners uh, know a little later about a special uh, premium offer we have. And that'll, again, be later in the show. Uh, it's a premium that will help support both WBI and the independent. And also later in the show, we'll take calls from listeners. Uh, but for now, let's, uh, let's dive in here. So, uh, first of all, uh, Nick, what, uh, why were you motivated to write this article? Uh, what, uh, what, what impelled you to, uh, share this vision? Smelling my son's hair at night when he sleeps, uh, next to me and, you know, tucking him in and, you know, getting up sometimes late and preparing for the class, preparing for the next day's class. And I was reading the autobiography of a slave by Frederick Douglass. And I came across literally the earliest pages where he described his mother coming to him at night from a very far off plantation, laying next to him, giving him her warmth and holding and kind of tucking him in. And then oftentimes having to leave before sunrise 
And so he only saw her oftentimes at night, only sometimes as one shadow among other shadows, and knew that she loved him, but didn't know her very well. And yet this, you know, very brief character only appears, you know, short. And I put myself in her position and I really began to wonder how can I reimagine teaching this book, not just from the position of Frederick Douglass, who's obviously the narrator, the protagonist of, you know, obviously one of the icons of black history, politics and literature, but what does it look like from her point of view and from the point of view of all those people who risk their lives to be close to loved ones? And then the other reason um, that this article began to inspire me is that it was a very different way of looking at black literature, black politics and black freedom other than the oppression frame, which is that the only thing that you see in the oppression frame is black people as victims rather than black people. Right. And, and, and someone who influenced you in that way is uh, Daryl Pinckney. Yeah, actually. Uh, so the, his, I'll, I'll read the title. Social policy in the image of the damaged black psyche from 1880 to 1996, and the author's name is Dr. Actual Daryl Michael Scott. I'm and, sorry. Yeah, and it's okay. The book came out in 1997 from the University of North Carolina Press. And the reason the book is very important is because it takes a look at how the con- the theme that black people are damaged and that people of color in general are damaged by white supremacy and the repeating motif, the repeating image is used by different ideological systems. So for conservatives, they will take the any proof, any evidence or any image of black pathology and say, look, this is why we need segregation. We need to quarantine good mainstream America from people who are destroyed or dangerous. And then in the liberal ideological machine, in the liberal uh, ideology, the images of black pathology are used to say, look at what our system is doing to these people. We need reform to make our society more just. And then for other systems like black nationalism, this is kind of like a high octane fuel to say, look at what's doing to us. We must end this system that is destroying us and look at the evidence of this destruction. So Malcolm X oftentimes uh, paraded images of black uh, pathology, uh, you know, Farrakhan, Sister Soldier, you know, the list goes on. And so what his book made me sensitive to was the over-reliance on images of damaged people of color, damaged psychologically, like in um, Richard Wright's Native Son, damaged culturally, or if you go as far as Nazis or the KKK damaged genetically and are unable to really be part of civilization. So once I saw that, I thought, God, so many ideological um, positions are in a sense kind of relying on, on black pathology as a way of fueling their politics. And then when I saw Douglas's mom walking through the night, probably scared, tired, just to reach her son and hold him for a couple of hours before having to go back, I thought, I think the more powerful story is love. Mm. And, and I mean, just to be clear, you're, you're not saying that the suffering or the damage hasn't happened, but you, you're 
looking to sort of add uh, add to that narrative or or yeah i don't think anyone who thinks that would even be on this show (laughs) (laughs) you know i don't think you'd even get through the front door much less the the intro but what i'm saying is that an over-reliance on images of black damage Mm -hmm. or damaged black people is in itself uh political because what it does is it eclipses or makes it harder to see the other truth which is that love, creativity, intelligence, and passion are what enable people to survive white supremacy. Right. And, and uh, speaking of, of first-person uh, testimonials as a, as a part of the Black uh, literary canon, uh, can you talk about uh, some of the other authors uh, who uh, who really helped shape that can- canon, uh, uh, like James Baldwin, Malcolm X, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Asada Shakur? And, and others that you would want to highlight. Yeah. So when you look at the black literary canon, what you see is this, is this tense relationship between evidence and witnessing or even confessing or testimonial of one's own damage, the heartbreak in one's family, the drug abuse of an aunt, um, the kind of over reliance on religion from an uncle, um, the the sex work of a niece, um, the the jail time of a cousin, and there's this tense relationship between those images and then the images of of recovering oneself and finding one's blackness and taking pride in one's body, and so those two poles often exist within one book, and what we see is usually an arc of going from one to the other. So Frederick Douglass and slavery goes from illiteracy to literacy to freedom, right? And that plot and the slave narrative, which is when it's a slave and illiterate becomes literate and then gets their freedom, either just steals themselves away, finds a way to be free. And you see that in Malcolm X. Again, he was in a sense, obviously after slavery, but he was enslaved by poverty and ignorance. He learns how to really read, read history, read law, read philosophy, and then he himself frees himself and becomes part of the larger black nationalist tradition. And, and this began when he was serving a seven-year prison yeah. sentence in yeah, Massachusetts. So in Massachusetts. And he was reading, actually, some of the earliest kind of abolitionist texts, some of the earliest slave narratives, much like what Frederick Douglass did with the Columbia Orator. And then you see this again in The Color Purple. Seeley, the main character, is illiterate. She becomes literate, and, sh- and through her reading and exchanging letters with her sister in Africa, she also, in a sense, kinds of finds herself and becomes part of the larger Black nationalist tradition. Asada, also, you know, again, she was literate, but then she learns how to read in the larger history. So it's not just about reading. It's about reading history and finding one's place in the larger Black freedom struggle that oftentimes transforms someone. Mm. And... and- uh, one author who's been a, t- a touchstone for you, I know, in, in recent years, uh, it is uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, the best-selling author of uh, Between the World and Me, uh, staff writer for The Atlantic, and has uh, um, been a very prominent voice in the last 10 years. And I know you've sort of uh, almost been a, sort of in a, a dialogue with him in a sense, it, in, in some ways re- responding to what you you disagree with him as much as what you, anything you might agree with him. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sure that's a very one-sided dialogue. Uh, he's never heard of me. Of course. <laughs> but like, you know, uh, it's, I'm sure probably uh, some of it is a uh, professional jealousy. 
Um, that MacArthur Genius Grant money looks really, really good when you have to pay rent in New York. But um, um, but I think my main main concern is not so much his writing because he's writing within the tradition. He's writing within one bandwidth of a much larger black literary tradition. It's not that. And actually, I think he's a great technical writer. And he has so much flair, great characterization, good ear for dialogue. He's a, he's a good writer. But my queasiness was about his incredible embrace by the white liberal publishing world and readership. And what it showed me is that his reliance on a version of Afro-pessimism, the belief that there is no hope for people of color in the United States, and that the defining feature of American history and life is not just racism, but the destruction of white supremacy, the, how white supremacy destroys black life. And he offers up different forms of evidence, which is, again, part of the tradition, antidotes, testimonial from his own life, witnessing of other people's lives, as well as statistics, as well as larger history, as well as citing laws. And my concern was that it fit the white liberal ideology need, its need for black pathology, for its images of damaged black people, because that's what fuels its ideas. That's what fuels its urgency for reformism. And that's what um, fuels its emotional drive to, you know, speak on behalf of those who are silent, um, even if it's to offer the most tepid reforms. And so my concern was less about his writing, um, which is balanced out by other black writers, than how it was made into this iconic, you know, masterpiece you know, writer with his, you know, between the world and me, uh, it became this kind of iconic masterpiece right up there with James Baldwin. And I realized because that's what James Baldwin's role was, is that once in a while, a black writer shows up who really fits the need of the white liberal establishments, um, hunger for images of damaged black people with an arc of redemption at the end and, you know, and hope at the end. And so that's what Baldwin offered. And that's what Ta-Nehisi Coates offered. And um, I think that the danger I felt was that it foreclosed our political imagination to more anti-capitalist visions in literature, because what was then kind of the end was this kind of redemption and maybe hope for reform within capitalism, within America as it is now, instead of offering maybe a larger vision which would have been more transformative. And I think that's that's what really always made me queasy, nervous, apprehensive about the acclaim that he was given. And and I think that that it's not in any way throwing dirt on the quality of his of his writing, but it's saying that that more powerful visions that could really deliver us or at least help us go and sustain us are being cut off because that same white liberal, you know, publishing world ideology always balks. It flinches at the idea of a radical revolutionary movement. And and a movement that would potentially be uh, multiracial, multiracial in, in nature. Yeah. That's the, that's the thing that, that gets me is that, that what I see in, in Coates 
And something that I think if I, I remember there was a, a YouTube video or something that his, his, his own father was kind of like, Hey, look, I disagree with my son, which I'm sure would have, would have been awkward at the Thanksgiving dinner. But when Coates, in a sense, makes race so overly determinative that he actually takes away or overlooks exactly in our history, which gives us the most possibility against racism which is that race, the categories of race that we live with today are fluid. They've always been fluid. If you look at any of the history, um, you see that, you know, this category of whiteness that we now, you know, um, that through a Coatesian vision seems so impenetrable was actually itself quite fluid. And that, you know, different ethnic European ethnic groups were not considered white. And slowly, because of the needs of the ruling class and capital, you know, capitalist mobilization for World War One and World War Two, different ethnic groups were being brought in. So the Irish became white. There's a whole series of books on this, how the Jewish became white. Um, you know, Italians would become white. Like all of these groups that were not kind of officially white became adopted. So we see that the category of whiteness itself is kind of fluid. And now it's working its kind of fierce and toxic magic on Latinos, depending on their skin color. Um, and, and blackness is the same way. You know, if you look at how the boundaries of blackness are constantly kind of in negotiation because of region, are you from the West Indies, the West Indians, you know, and home to Harlem, the classic, you know, text of Harlem, you see a lot of confrontation between West Indians and African Americans and then African migrants and people fighting over space and what's considered decent and proper and what's considered black and what's not considered black. So it's exactly the fluidness of these racial conventions, these categories, which is actually the greatest possibility. And so to do what Coates does in a Coatesian vision to make race this kind of reified, pure category, this thing that is you know, almost like kryptonite, like it just can't be, um, you know, penetrated, changed, that um, it actually, I think, robs us of the reality. And the reality is messier, and it's more fluid. And it's also uh, has a lot more possibility in it. Okay. Uh, you're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. We're talking with our guest, uh, Nicholas Powers, Professor of African American Literature at State University of New York, longtime contributing editor at The Independent and author of our cover story in the February Indie uh, titled Black Love as a Historical Force that Has Changed the World and America. Uh, so, Nick, in your article about black love, uh, you, you talk a lot about family and, and black families. And can you talk about how black families uh, adapted and survived both during and after slavery and, and their centrality to black love as, uh, as you envision it. When you look at the record, um, the structure of slavery was always being penetrated, uh, upended, uh, whittled through and holes bored into it by the constant pressure of millions upon millions of black people, both in the Caribbean, uh, Central South America, but it mostly obviously here in the United States, constantly finding holes in slavery to get loved ones, to get free. And then after they get their freedom to go back and get other people. 
Sometimes that was legally. People would buy themselves and then they would try to buy a wife for their children. Sometimes people would follow the North Star or basically know how to track their way north or across the Ohio River. And then they would oftentimes, or some people would go back and try to rescue others. The famous like Harriet Tubman. That's Harriet she- Tubman. And so what the reality is, is that love is one of the core life instincts that drives our species. And love for the children that we produce, love for those that we have children with, those of our family and our friends whose faces and eyes and smell make us light up. And, you know, when you hold them and hold them against your chest, you feel that you're complete. That love is as old as primordial cells splitting in the ocean. And it is a life force that always is stronger than any obstacle, any structure that you put in its way. And so, of course, this Black love whittled away sometimes had open rebellion like Denmark Vesey against slavery. And it began to hollow it out. And then after the Civil War, and obviously, finally, through the, you know, the the horror and beauty of war, slavery was destroyed to a degree. Again, you saw this attempt by the South and the Black Codes to recreate, you know, slavery through the chain gang system and putting people in jail uh, for the small offenses in order to, in other words, to use jail as a replacement and prison as a replacement for the plantation. And again, black love always had to fight against this criminalization of black life and the separation of black families. And so that's why, you know, black love has always in a sense, you know, been like that biblical scene uh, and, you know, that scene in the Bible where people were going around the city blowing their horns until the, the walls of the city fell. Um, and so black love has always, in a sense, had to destroy the walls of the plantation, destroy the walls of the prison, and also to destroy the internalized walls. Um, because one of the unfortunate consequences of white supremacy is not just the violence it does to our bodies, but it does to our minds. And so the colorism uh, within the community and how uh, that could get in the way of authentic love, the classism within the community and how that gets in the way of, of real love. And again, art tries to rescue us from the the worst effects of internalized racism. And so, you know, there's always this contest, you know, between black love and white supremacy, both in the institutions and internalized. And love always wins. I mean, sometimes more so than others, but it's always this ongoing force that identifies, calls out, and tries to destroy the obstacles in its way. And sometimes it can be incredibly powerful and very dangerous and uncontrollable. And I celebrate that. <laughs> right. Uh, and also, I mean, in, in, a, in a certain white discourse, I mean, black families have been portrayed you know, as, as vectors for social uh, pathology. You know, how do you respond to that? And what do you, uh, for the people who, who uh, come to these sort of uh, conclusions, uh, you know, what are they, what are they missing or, or and not willing to see? I think that they're being hoodwinked that when you see one dimension of a people and that one image of a people is being repeated over and over again, 
what you're seeing is not reality, but it's ideology. And so the image of black families as kind of vectors of pathology, um, you know, when you're inside the circle of color, you know, when your family is a family of color and, you know, inside that family, of course, you know, you've got your beef and, you know, people are angry that someone owes someone money and someone said something improper to someone else. And this person's not talking to the other person, you know, family dramas, family dramas, family drama. But, you know, the the reality is that there's also, at least my experience, a lot of generosity, a lot of love, a lot of sharing. I don't know how many times I've seen and heard and talked with people who's had to open their homes to a family member who lost their homes and they stayed there for months at a time. Family members who were sick and other people took care of them. Uh, family members who needed money. And yeah, no one likes to give up their bag, but they gave them that money. And yes, you know, like any family, there's hostilities, there's sullen cold wars, there's silences. But, you know, if you also look at the culture, again, what the culture produces, you know, I mean, think about the great black love movies, you know, whether it's Love Jones or The Best Man or, you know, some of the TV shows that are coming out now or, you know, classic songs by like Little Wayne, How to Love, um, you know, the songs by Alicia Keys about love, you know, the old Motown. It's like the culture produces over and over evidence that love and loving and being loved and knowing how to do that with grace and generosity are lessons that are constantly being relearned and then shared and taught to other people through art and even politics you know black lives matter began with that open letter uh you know which was in a sense a love letter to black people um so you know i think this image of you know black families as a as this kind of vector of pathology is conservative ide ideology at its worst or it's liberal ideology at its worst because it ignores the very power within black life that ultimately has transformed America into what it is now, which is a much better country than it was decades ago. Right. And, uh, uh I mean, without the black community, we would be, uh, in, in a second, uh, term with, uh, Donald Trump and, uh, probably, uh, well on our way to some sort of American version of fascism. Yeah. I mean, over and over again, Black America has saved the United States from the worst version of itself. And, you know, if it had not been for the Black freedom struggle and the love that drove it, we would be a, a kind of ethnic national, an ethno-nationalist state. And the, the laws and the books that other people enjoy. So it's not just victories for Black people, but the victories that were, you know, in a sense, pushed most strongly by Black America as well as obviously in, you know, Native Americans, Latinos, um, Asian Americans, like it was a multi workers, you know, it wasn't just black people alone, but it was a black freedom struggle. I think that really put its bodies on the lines and pushed hardest. And, you know, so much of America is in a sense benefiting from that struggle. Indeed. And your thought on uh, what dis, uh, distinguishes black love or what it has in common with what other groups uh, experienced, I'm thinking of the uh, migrants who've come to New York City by the thousands in the last nine months or so, many of them crossing uh, jungles and deserts and 
barbed wire fences and uh, border walls and all the rest uh, in the hopes of uh, making a better lives for their families and their children? Yeah, if if I were to kind of look through this essay, I would say that today the mother who is crossing a great distance to be with her child is Mexican, and she's crossing the U.S. border um, with her children or to be with her children or to find jobs uh, so that her kids, she can, you know, send money home. And I think what Black Love has been for me is a prism through which to see what is at the core of the other struggles. And so when you see that Black Love was always, in a sense, trying to return to other people who were separated from, you know, the mother, the father, the family, Also, Black Love was, in a sense, an attempt to return to the body that had been disfigured by white supremacy. And so to return to one's natural hair, to return to one's skin color, chocolate, ebony, obsidian, you know, burgundy, amber, um, to return to one's body, you know, to, to return to one's facial features. So it's a return to the body. And it's also a return to oneself through others because... When you see, you know, Asada allowing her Afro to come out, it wasn't just a kind of a idiosyncratic move by an intellectual artist in, you know, 1960s, 70s New York. It was a move that she did in concert with hundreds and thousands and millions of other people who also were returning to themselves. So it's a return to yourself through others. So the Black love energy increases it magnifies exponentially because everyone is on the same page. And so when I look at, at, at politics through that prism, you know, and that you see um, migrants, you know, crossing boundaries, it really reminds me of Douglas's mom crossing that long distance at night is that these national borders are not as important as the need for families to reunite or to have a chance at life. And that all the vacuous reasons that are given, you know, protecting our borders or COVID, you know, all of them are kind of superficial excuses that are in a sense just trying to hide the privilege and the power that we have and our property and our status from having to share it with other people. And, you know, when you really look at it, at least for me, looking at it through this kind of black prism, I see that love is what's driving people to cross the, the border, uh, mostly to reunite with the with their family. And so then, you know, you see the migrant um, crisis really as a love crisis. You know, here are people who are being driven to risk their life. Right. And that makes me look at the gay liberation movement, the women's liberation movement. Again, it's not about crossing external national boundaries, but it's about crossing the boundaries say, between being inside the closet as a gay man or woman and outside. And that path that you cross is, again, returning to your body, returning to what you really, truly feel. Um, it's the same thing for the women's labor liberation movement. One of the things you're tired of getting exploited economically at work or living trapped within the male gaze and having to kind of transform yourself into this Barbie doll so that men will find you appealing rather than expressing your own sexuality and your own beauty and your own sensuality on your own terms. So... So much of this it becomes much more clear when I'm looking at through a, a black prism. Okay, we are talking uh, with uh, 
Professor Nicholas Powers, Professor of African American Literature, longtime contributing editor to The Independent, author of our cover story this month on Black Love as a Historical Force that Has Changed America and the World. Uh, we're going to be back with more after this short break here on WBAI 99.5 FM. That was Greetings by Hamza al-Din, Nubian musician from Upper Egypt. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent. My co-host, Abba Gagarian, is out this week. Uh, today, as we mark Valentine's Day, I've been speaking with the Independent's Nicholas Powers about black love as a historical force that has changed America and the world. This is the subject of his cover story in the February Independent about black love as a transformative force in American history. We're going to continue that interview with Nick shortly. But first, I want to ask you to support the station. WBAI is a listener-sponsored community radio station powered by listeners like yourself since 1960. We don't have deep-pocketed corporate owners or corporate sponsors to bankroll us. That's why we need that's why we're able to bring you shows like the Independent News Hour and so many other excellent shows on the station and voices like those of Nicholas Powers. Please call 212-209-2950 or go to give number 2 wbaiorg Yeah, that's right. So it's 212-209-2950. So give to give to wbai.org. Um so is there a special premium, some some goodie that you referred to earlier in the show, John? Uh, indeed. We are offering listeners a chance to become a WBAI buddy and get a subscription to The Independent and be a WBAI buddy, all for $35 per month. You'll get all the perks of being a WBAI buddy, and you'll get every issue of The Independent delivered straight to your mailbox, starting with the February Independent with Nick's cover story on black love as a historical force that has changed America and the world. Please call 212-209-2950 or go to give number two WBAI.org and sign up today. Yeah. For those who are listening, I've already signed up and I encourage you to do that as well. Uh, you know, you're adding your money, your, your energy, your time to the voices that we need to hear if we're going to maintain some level of sanity. So for our all sake, please call 
209-2950, you know, give to WBAI.org and sign up. And once again, we are offering you, our listener, a chance to, uh, to become both a WBAI buddy and get all the perks that come with that. And also to get a subscription to the independent, all bundled for $35 per month. And you, in addition to being, becoming a WBAI buddy, you'll get every issue of the independent delivered straight to your mailbox. You don't have to go out and look for it. I don't have to brave the bad weather on, uh, on times when we, when the weather uh, gets rough. The, the paper will come straight to your mailbox, starting with our February issue with Nick's cover story on black love as a historical force that has changed America and the world. Once again, please call. 212-209-2950 or go to give number two WBAI.org and sign up today. Oh yeah, John, is this for the rent? For the space? <laughs> That's right. WBI has to pay $17,000 per month in rent to house its antenna and transmitter atop four times square in the heart of Manhattan. Of course, the rent is too damn high. It's New York. We all know that, but we've got to pay the bills so we can keep WBAI beaming across the five boroughs of New York City and the greater New York City region, Long Island, uh, Westchester County, up into the Hudson Valley, into New Jersey. Uh, when we pay, we can only do this if we, if we pay the rent and keep the, the antenna and the transmitter, uh, beaming away up there atop that skyscraper at times, at Times Square. Yeah. So please, you know, uh, contribute or, we're just going to have to roam through the streets hauling the transmitter and antenna on our backs. So we'll look like Ghostbusters. So please, please, <laughs> please, um, give us, you know, give WBAI the money. Uh, we promise that, you know, they'll spend it wisely. Um, you know, maybe they'll buy a round at the bar, but they'll spend most of it wisely. Uh, so again, it's 212-209-2950 or give to give to WBAI.org. Right. And it, it, if you don't want to sign up for that $35 per month, uh, incredible premium today, you can also make a one-time contribution. We're also grateful for that. And if you have the means to do so, you can please give a little bit extra for someone who can't afford to give anything at all. 212-209-2950 or give to BAI.org. So Nick, uh, turning back to our discussion, uh, um, Another thing you emphasized in your article, which you were uh, talking about a little bit before we uh, went into the break, was the centrality of returning to one's uh, body. And, um, can you talk a little bit more about that and, and why that is uh, such an important part of black love? Yeah, over and over, when when one starts their first step on this journey of black love, whether it's Douglas's mom leaving her shack on the plantation to take you know a walk through the midnight to get to her son whether it's the march in on selma and people marching across the bridge in defiance of cops who are part of the kkk uh whether it's the many of us who marched during the george floyd protest that this step the steps that one takes on this kind of journey of black love that there is usually this address that reappears in the literature and in the art and in the popular culture. And that address is the return to the body. And I first saw it again, after looking at 
at Douglas's autobiography through the prism of black love. Obviously, I saw it with his mom. But then later, I saw that when Douglas began to read, what he really returned to was his own body because he was finally able to express in words his desire to be free. Because before then, he had the feelings, but the feelings would come and go and then come back like waves on an ocean. But he didn't have an intellectual container to really hold them. And when he became literate, that he and he read the Colombian Orator and encountered abolitionist arguments within the Colombian Orator, he finally had this container that crystallized, that transformed into kind of, you know, powerful jet. And <clears throat> later on in other literature, you see the same thing within Malcolm X. He begins to return to his body. He no longer conks his hair. Um, he begins to see beauty in other black people rather than kind of preying on other people in Harlem's criminal underworld. I saw it in Asada Shakur's um, 1986 self-titled text, Asada, where she talks about how she had internalized racism, especially as a child. You know, she would um, tease other kids who were darker than her, calling them, you know, you know, you're too black and black, you're black this and look, you're ugly and black. And, and she carried that internalized racism. And then it kind of really startled her how much she had internalized when she became more politic politicized. And finally, she started looking at her own self and realized, you know, she, all of these um, emblems, these kind of scarification rituals of white supremacy, her hair being fried and, you know, trying to pass, you know, trying to be as white as possible, that she began to shed all of that, like a diseased old skin. And finally, her true self came out like a butterfly from a cocoon, you know, radiant in all of her colors. And so that's when there was a scene. She chopped off her straightened hair and grew her hair out like as an Afro and natural. My mom went through that transformation. Right. And began to, you know, obviously, you know, her name, um, she transformed her name into Asada, you know, a more Eastern African name rather than Joel, which she had before. Um, and so. And, and I think I, there's also a reminder there that. Uh, uh, most people are not born with radical politics. Exactly, exactly. That's and, and sometimes we on the left can forget that and be a little uh, self-righteous. Uh, and you know, people are all on their journeys. Even somebody like Asada Shakur didn't start where she ended. Yeah, and it's the same thing with a more recent. Not when say more. Yeah, kind of contemporary time. Uh, those a little bit earlier, technically, in this publishment. And Tazaki's Shange's famous choreo poem for colored girls who consider suicide when the rainbow was enough. And again, you see, you know, there, uh, the lady in blue who has an abortion, the lady in yellow, the lady in red, and all of these different iconic black women wearing these kind of elemental colors. And they all have a story of either being abused um, physically, having one's children killed, uh, another one was raped, another one had an abortion, um, and another one contracted HIV from a down-low lover who didn't tell her that he was, you know, kind of two-timing her. And so that all of all of these women, then at the end, they held, you know, hands in a circle and they began to sing that I found God in myself, um, I found God in myself, and she loved me. And I remember seeing my mom do that play at Hole in the Wall Theater in Hartford, Connecticut. And it was just beautiful, so powerful to see these, you know, New Yorkian women and Black American women and West Indian women all together singing. I found, I saw God, I found God in myself and I loved her fiercely. And so what we see over and over again, um, 
in both popular culture, you know, Beyonce having kind of like Black uh, Panther kind of um, choreography and, you know, costuming, at, I think one of her Super Bowl uh, halftime shows, is that what you see over and over again is that the address, the final kind of address for uh, Black love is a return to the body and a return to the body or a return to the self through others, right, in concert with others. And that so the liberation is not individual, but it's collective. And it's always a transformation. And it's just a transformation that has actually an intense amount of shock in it, guilt, at how much damage we've done to ourselves and to others. And then a sense of euphoria, because when you release this kind of internalized white supremacy and, and really begin to uh, imagine what a world that actually answers the need of black love looks like, you almost get just high on it. You get drunk on it. You know, it tr you become transcendent and euphoric. And um, Asada once said that, you know, when she was on the revolution, it felt like the best drug ever, you know? <laughs> and, and I think it's because, you know, unlike real technical chemical drugs, you know, love is incredibly sustainable. When you have a love high, you know, it doesn't burn you out like cocaine or MDMA or, sure. or you know, it's just, it's a natural love high that you feel this wave with other people. So, you know, I think that's, that then gave me a prism Oddly enough, to look at not only the other movements, which you talked about before, but I remember when I was reading Marx and the Communist Manifesto and Capital and the German ideology. And what struck me is that he looked at the workers as alienated from their own bodies and their own consciousness. And part of seizing the means of production was also a means of producing their own consciousness to become not just labor but to become the proletariat so that your consciousness is in is for itself and that was a return to the body and so it really kind of startled me that this black prism this return to the body is a universal urge that rises out of a hierarchical society that depends on the separation of the laborer from themselves and separation of people from themselves in order to pull out from that separation, profit, money, status, and power that goes swelling up to the elite, the ruling class. But here's probably the greatest, one of the tragedies of, of that kind of violent extraction is that the people who receive that great wealth, who receive that great money, they themselves become alienated from themselves. You know, they, wind up becoming kind of trapped in a gilded prison and they have to, they have to kind of perform their own form of alienation that is directly connected to the alienation of those who they exploit. And so no one wins in this world. And so I think that's, that's one of the powers um, that is the potential of this idea of returning to the bodies that you see it in Marx and you see it in, uh, and Sasaki Shange's For Colored Girls Considered Suicide, When the Rainbow Was Enough. You see it in Shakur's autobiography. You hear it sometimes in, in music like J. Cole's We Want to Be Free. Um, and so over and over again, you hear it. And I think if you look at revolution through the eyes of love, there's much more possibilities um, than if you look at it through the eyes of sectarian precision or self-righteousness, which is, I think, why the image of the rainbow was so important for colored girls who considered suicide 
when the rainbow was enough and the rainbow's multiplicity of colors that the beauty of the rainbow should cure you of the of the need for suicide because you can see possibility there and so i think ultimately that's what love is it gives you rainbow eyes and you can see possibility where before you couldn't right and, and we'll have to go here in about 3 minutes but um can you talk a little bit about uh, uh impediments uh to experiencing that black love that arise um you have a, a a passage in your essay when you when you talk about when you flow with black love you can't carry isms the colorism the classism the sexism with you uh, and uh, on from there uh, can you talk a little bit about i guess uh, we call it a maybe respectability politics or other uh, impediments that uh, thwart uh, black love yeah one of the the probably the great dangers the the great things that get in the way of 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 the power of black love is the complicity that we all perform to be part of the system. And that complicity takes the form of respectability politics, which, you know, early in the, in the 1800s, um, you know, when the first kind of, um, uh, I would say after the civil war, but when the first free black churches really got established, you know, one of the gambles, one of the kind of Faustian pacts deals that were made was that if we can be as more Christian and respectable um, that w- through our respectability, we will be allowed into mainstream American life. And so Christianity became this kind of act of complicity with the larger mainstream world. So, okay, let's, let's be as, you know, as Christian as possible. Then class became this act of complicity. And, you know, let's try to be as middle class as possible. Let's, let's kind of integrate. And all of these, and you know, acts of complicity then also come with their shadow side, which is homophobia, or or classism and bigotry towards the poor, and or focusing only on middle class reformism rather than revolution. And eventually, what happens is is that gets in the way of of the power of black love, and um, and it's also so insidious because it's done. It's almost like fubu prejudice. It's for us by us. And so I think that that's the real crucible, because if you can crack that, then that means that the love can flow more freely and start turning the wheels of progress, not just only for black America, but for really everyone else, not only in the country, but also in the world. Okay. And um, we do have to go here in a minute. Um, Any final thoughts on, on, uh, what we've just been through in, in the last uh, month or so uh, with the police murder of uh, Tyree Nichols. Of course, he was uh, killed by five black police officers. The protest that's inspired and um, sort of uh, where we are and where we're headed. The the outcry against the black police officers and, you know, obviously they're they're very quick um, firing and being charged. One, it showed the effectiveness of the prior waves of anti-police brutality uh, protest. But I think, again, it showed that black love is too intelligent to be blinded by skin color. This is old saying that not all skin folk are kin folk, right? And the most powerful thing about black love is its intelligence and to be able to kind of see through the hustle and realize that um, you have to look at what people do. And what they do tells you who they really are and, and what their their truth is. And and so it didn't hold people back 
from having vigils and protests against the five black officers because, you know, people know that um, internalized racism can come out just as violently as institutional racism. And so, you know, what I'm seeing over and over again is that this kind of black love uh, protest revolution against the carceral state is winning and it's already won on a huge cultural level. And now it's going to have to go to the next level where not only do we get lost, but we really start to dismantle uh, not just the prison, but the poverty that oftentimes is used as a trap to get people into jail and prison. And so I think prison is not just the end result, but it's the stuff that happens upstream um, with poverty. And so I think that um, right. what I'm sensing is that that's, that's getting next on the target list. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there, but... Uh, Nicholas Powers, contributing editor at The Independent, uh, professor of African-American literature at State University of New York. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, John. It's so good to see you. And thank you to everyone at, um, who's listening to WBAI. All righty. So I want to thank our board operator, Reggie Johnson. And we'll be back same time next week uh, with The Independent News Hour. I'll be rejoined by my co-host, Amba Gagarian. And we'll leave today with Jump and Shout for those now gone by Cahil El Zabar. <laughs>